Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined by Sam Goldman for a talk about the 50s, the bourgeoisie, the transformations of American egalitarianism, which is already a theme for us and presumably will be a theme for us again. Today we're talking about the thriller, The Talented Mr. Ripley, the 1999 Anthony Minghella movie starring Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon, whom I think was the bane of the 90s, the cultural suicide of America. More on that later. The Talented Mr. Ripley has this astonishing quality of depicting the imitativeness of the 50s bourgeoisie, of the strange way in which the equality of America was based on imitating the wasps, who nevertheless were collapsing, both in terms of their political influence and in terms of their social institutions. And this is the sort of thing that Sam and I talk about, and I think we bringing it to the great wide audience will be a smashing success. At any rate, we can piggyback on the glamour of these times, sort of like Ripley does with his rich friends. Sam, thank you for joining me and for putting up with my histrionics. How are you doing? Very well this morning, Titus. And I should say that in our last conversation, we were very earnest and uh, analytic, which I think was appropriate for a discussion of Metropolitan in which the characters have the same qualities, even to the point of vice. So I'm looking forward to a conversation in which we can be more sweeping and amusing in the manner of Dickie Greenleaf. Yes, exactly. That's what I aim for. And I believe I have got the shallow part down. Sam, first of all, to remind our audience, since we will be talking about about both novel and the movie adaptation, can you please run us through the plot of the movie? Yes, we should emphasize that I'm describing the plot of the movie. The plot of the novel has some important differences that might be relevant to one's assessment. But this is how the movie works. So Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon, is a young man of no particular family or advantages who is living on the margins of what our friends in Metropolitan would have called the urban haute bourgeoisie, the ob society of mid-century New York working as a party piano player, among other things. And at one of the parties where he's playing piano, he is mistaken for a Princeton graduate by a man named Herbert Greenleaf, whose son, Dickie, had attended Princeton and was about the same age. And Greenleaf develops the idea that Ripley should go to Italy, where his son is living on his private income in a lavish and dissolute manner, and convince him to return to America and go to work in the family firm. And Ripley, as you might imagine, doesn't need much convincing in order to undertake this task and to escape the precarious circumstances in which he's living. So he travels to Italy first class, and even during his journey, we can see that he's experimenting with the idea of becoming Dickie, of adopting his persona, not only for the instrumental reason that he wants to learn about who Dickie is so he can try to discharge this task that he's been given, but also because he finds the identity itself thrilling and attractive. And as he's disembarking from the ship, he meets a character named Meredith Logue, played by Kate Blanchett, and presents himself to her as Dickie, which becomes important at the end. 
After landing, Ripley tracks down Dickie in a village outside Naples, where he's living with Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays his girlfriend, Marge. And after an awkward encounter, he convinces them that he's a figure from Dickie's past and joins them in their idle merriment, going to nightclubs, sunning themselves on the beach, and generally enjoying themselves. And what Ripley doesn't realize is that Dickie understands that he's being paid by his father to retrieve him and is using him because the money that his father is sending is useful to Dickie. And after a period of time, Greenleaf cancels the mission and cuts off the money. And at this point, Dickie cuts off Ripley as well. Ripley is furious. They take a sort of farewell journey to San Remo, and there in a small boat, which they've taken out to amuse themselves, Ripley murders Dickie. At this point, he assumes the identity of Dickie, and the rest of the film is a sort of thriller in which he is dodging the police who are looking for Dickie, who has disappeared, dodging Marge, who knows him as Tom rather than as Dickie, and a series of other characters whom he has to sort of balance as he maintains these two identities. Finally, he's able to convince Greenleaf, who comes to Italy to investigate, that Dickie committed suicide. And Greenleaf agrees to make over Dickie's income to Tom, setting him up in the groovy lifestyle that he's always admired. And he thinks he's gotten away free. He's also developed a homosexual relationship with one of Marge's friends, who's presented as a very nice and tasteful guy, a real step up from Dickie, about whom Ripley had also had a sexual fantasy or sexual attraction, but wasn't interested in him. So Ripley and his boyfriend are making their escape. They're traveling to Greece. But by chance, Meredith Logue is on the same boat. And she knows Tom as Dickie, not as Tom Ripley. And in order to prevent an encounter between Meredith and Peter, with whom he's traveling and who knows him as Tom, Ripley is forced to kill his lover and to adopt permanently the Dickie Greenleaf identity, continuing to travel with Meredith off into the sunset or at least wherever the currents take him. So like many, many thrillers, it has a plot that is more complicated and implausible when you try to describe it than when you see it on the screen. But essentially, it's a story of assumed identity and the challenges that Ripley faces in trying to break free of the humble origins that bring him shame, but also prevent him from enjoying life in the way that he feels he's entitled to do. Yeah, that's an odd combination of almost granting through crime every desire this enterprising young man has, and on the other hand, denying him the substance, as it were, of his desires. As you say, this starts as a picaresque a European adventure for these beautiful young Americans, turns halfway through into a thriller, and from then on, it turns out that none of the security that he's looking for what he admires above all in the rich is how sure of themselves they are. They just take the world for granted. Nothing bad can come their way. That's what he wants because he's such a small-time operator. 
Nevertheless, for all the success he achieves, he has to keep destroying people in fear because he can't be sure of himself. It makes for a troubling story in a way I suppose most thrillers aren't because this guy is a psychopath. He is a wicked man and we don't want to get away with it. But in a way, what might be worse is that it suggests that even if you were to slip the bounds of the law, you would never be able to achieve what you want. You'd never be able to scale the Olympian heights of that sort of American aristocracy. Even if you got there, you would never be able to enjoy it. Even if you achieved the income, if you achieved the kind of identity, you'd always be looking over your shoulder. You'd always be concerned with any disclosure you might make of yourself because it might lead you to murder somebody. Yes, and this is one of the important differences to the book, which I reread the other night to prepare for our conversation and hadn't read for some time. I actually remembered it as being more similar to the film than it really is. And the essential difference, apart from details of plot, is that in the film, Ripley is clearly, in certain respects, a psychopath or mentally disturbed. He will stop at nothing to get what he wants. But what he wants is much more human. He wants to be secure. He wants to be happy. He wants to be accepted in his sexuality. And it's because his dreams are dashed and rejected again and again that he becomes increasingly violent and dangerous. In the book, he is clearly a dangerous person from the start. And in those opening scenes in the film, he's depicted as a frustrated artist. He wants to play music. In the novel, he's conducting some kind of tax fraud. So whereas the film tries to humanize Ripley, even though he goes to lengths that few of us would and few of us would endorse, the novel is much more comfortable presenting him as a psychopath who enjoys manipulating people and even killing people in itself, rather than as a means to an end that constantly eludes him. Yeah, you'd say that the movie is far more bourgeois itself. As you say, it wants to give us a therapeutic answer. He's a tortured young man. He's Matt Damon. Just look at him and you know he's going to start crying. He is shown in all his feebleness in the beginning with these dorky glasses and his pale white where all these other people are bronze gods on the beaches of Montebello in southern Italy. So you're supposed to pity him. You're supposed to want to protect him, I guess, from the humiliations of reality. Whereas the novel has none of that. No, and the motive for his murder of Dickie, which is the pivotal event that leads him from essentially small-time, non-violent crime into a career as, as a serial killer, really, is quite different. So in the film, Damon is moved to murderous rage because he declares his love for Dickie, and Dickie rejects him, and he's unable to accept this. In the novel, his murder of Dickie is premeditated. It's not a crime of passion. And the motive is that Ripley understands that Dickie is cutting him off and can no longer help him socially or financially, and that he needs to cut this loose end or he'll end up back where he was before. So throughout the film, there's an effort that maybe you you say is characteristic of the 90s. 
I'm not sure about that. I think it's more characteristic of our recent culture in general that needs a sympathetic and understandable motive rather than presenting this character simply as a monster. And the reason that I say that I think it's more general is that in reading the book, I I thought of another great psychopath of literature and cinema, Hannibal Lecter, who in the film of The Silence of the Lambs is much closer to the Ripley of the book. He does these terrible things because he enjoys them and because he thinks he is entitled to treat human beings as raw material for his desires. But in more recent presentations, including a film series that I haven't seen, uh, a TV series that I haven't seen, but I'm told is popular, there's a backstory that explains in accessible terms how he became a monster. So maybe this is a, a relic of 90s culture, but maybe it was also a precursor to a therapeutic conception of evil or a therapeutic denial of evil that continues now to this day, more than 20 years later. Uh, I think you're certainly right about this thing, that it hasn't stopped and it doesn't show signs of stopping yet, and that it's a broader movement. Indeed, I think you're right. It's about on the one hand denying that evil exists and on the other hand explaining it away, the literally argument in the alternative. <laughs> the evil doesn't exist and we have it coming also (laughs) you know nowadays even celebrities that get into some kind of drug or violence or some kind of problem they will be learning a lesson from it maybe starting a charity making very apologetic posts on social media they will be explaining away their faults and giving us a moralistic story about how they are in fact redeeming themselves and indeed contributing to social redemption by bringing awareness, by focusing on the issue. This flatters all the prurient interests mankind have been known to entertain, but of course it also conceals any of the dark stuff that we just don't really want to deal with. The movie Talented Mr. Ripley, as you say, is full of this stuff. It's making every effort possible to shift the question away from the Hannibal Lecter, from being a monster because you think you're a god, And that makes it shallow and less interesting in certain ways than the book, because the question that the film left me with is, okay, if Tom were a little bit more fortunate in his circumstances, if he had been richer or had been born slightly later and into a more morally and sexually tolerant society, does this mean that he would just have lived an ordinary life that would have been more satisfying to him and would have ended up a perfectly nice person? If the answer to that question is yes, then he's a much less interesting character than the Ripley of the book. Yeah, I think you're right. What he is is so very 90s because he's a bourgeois bohemian. He is one of David Brooks's bobos. He wants, on the one hand, to the self-expression and the joys and the sophistication that we call Europe since the days of Henry James. But on the other hand, he wants a kind of respectability as a person. He wants to be recognized as who he is and not to be maltreated or despised by these rich people. In the movie, it matters far more that the rich people he is despoiling and murdering uh, they, they're ne'er-do-wells. They live off wealth. They are not productive members of society. They are dissolute. They are morally reprehensible. In the movie, Ripley largely looks like a bourgeois 
50s person faced with these people who are committed to access to Dionysian revelry. And that's strikingly bohemian conception of the character that I think you're right, makes him less interesting and shifts the entire story around to these much more beautiful people of whom he is envious. Indeed, the Dickie Greenleaf of the movie is Jude Law, who is not just tanned like a bronze statue of a Greek god, he's also so strikingly beautiful and vaguely androgynous. His uh, features are so chiseled, he's not manly. There's nothing in his manner or in his physique that bespeaks the manliness of a Greek hero. And so it's not just readily available to androgynous love. He's a celebrity. He's all about glamour. And what Tom Ripley is about is getting into the glamorous society. And I think that's very true of the 90s and indeed of our own time when people desperately try to become celebrities, make themselves into celebrities on Instagram or become influencers or what have you. I think this dynamic is very much alive. And I think the connection of glamour and therapy is one of the more startling and insightful aspects of the movie. I think it fits with some of these things that were being said in the late 90s, like British analysis, Glamorama, about uh, models turning into terrorists, because in a way they're mindless, and in another way they're open to extreme experiences, discovery of identity through horror. And that was parodied in Zoolander, but it gets to the same question. These incredibly beautiful people are somehow tied up with a terrible danger. Desire might unleash, because of the vacuity of the society, uh, these sorts of horrifying desires, say desires for revenge, desires to put an end to it. Thinking of Tom Ripley as a man who commits crimes of passion rather than premeditated murder uh, points in that uh, strange direction. Yes, although there's an interesting contrast in the film that I think is not in the book between glamour, as you so rightly say, evoking a sort of magical charm with authentic expression, which is represented in the film by music, both the classical music that Ripley loves and the jazz that he pretends to like, but is shown in the movie as a a form of freedom and expression that eludes him. The book is much more dismissive of authenticity than the film is. Music plays no role in the book. Um, The artistic connection, both in the original novel and in its sequels, is visual art. So Dickie dabbles in painting, um, and in some of the later novels, uh, Ripley becomes an art dealer, and in particular, a dealer of forgeries. He invents a painter and creates a backstory for him and then pawns off these paintings on unsuspecting buyers. So so whereas the novels present art itself as a kind of glamour, which is ultimately empty as a form of fraud, the film always suggests that there is a, a realm of true expression and authentic freedom that Ripley yearns for, but continues to elude him. And again, as with the the therapeutic explanation of his character, that's much more comforting to us in the audience than the more nihilistic suggestion that it's all fake, it's all glamour, it's all essentially will to power, which I think is the suggestion of the book and, and is the reason that even now, nearly, I think, 75 years or so after their publication, some people still find the Ripley novels 
uncomfortably nihilistic. Yeah, I think you're right. This insistence on music is about letting something out of yourself, about the suggestion that you have an interiority, and that's quite important. Somehow society is trying to repress it, but you know, it could come out. Jazz music stands for that, and these scenes in Italian jazz clubs also have this feature of a time when America was being exported as a culture internationally. These Italians are looking to jazz it up as well. They're discovering themselves in this way. And the odd consequence of this is that it makes Dickie Greenleaf the Democrat. He's rebelling against his father's rich shipping business and all that stuff. And he's hand in hand with all these poor people going with the current of the times, the musical revolution before, of course, the rock revolution. Whereas Tom Ripley is presented as something of an aristocrat. Is the classical music, of course, but it's also his more precise manners and his peculiar propriety and you know, his interest in this other young man with whom he has a brief affair before he murders him too, has a lot to do with, you could say, the almost sacred character of classical music. Indeed, there are scenes of playing in churches. This is a very strange association to make, and it's, of course, not the way Patricia Highsmith presents the situation. Tom Ripley is somehow escaping the bourgeois restrictions of the 50s in a more authentic way than does Dickie Greenleaf. Greenleaf is just running away from his family and living on somebody's money and having a certain kind of fun that doesn't seem to be leading to anything. In fact, the Dickie Greenleaf of the novel is, before his murder, returning back to society. He would be willing to marry March, of course, and be some kind of fairly conventional rich person. And so in the novel, it seems like Dickie Greenleaf went out on a limb and he thought it would be fun, but he found something there that killed him. It's what he found is Tom Ripley, who has actually escaped bourgeois society by leaping into nihilism. His misery is, you know, he feels he can, Tom Ripley actually thinks he can put this behind and that there's no price to pay for doing terrifying things. It may be bad for other people, but it's never going to be bad for you. Crime essentially pays. He believes in this without exemption and without any kind of internal struggle. Yes, the relationship between bourgeois and aristocratic values in the film is particularly interesting because it's made in the late 90s when we know how this all turned out. The tension is less clear in the, in the novel written in the mid 50s when there's still a, a transition. So it's, it's this interesting moment when what were historically aristocratic practices and symbolism and associations are becoming bourgeois, they're becoming middle brow to use the phrase that was popular at the time. And what were historically lower class associations are becoming aristocratic. So what do Dickie and Marge do, especially Dickie? They lie around on the beach, not working, and they listen to jazz, which had become an art music by their time, but you know, was historically a lower class popular music. Tom, on the other hand, is attached to the aristocratic aesthetics of a previous age, of the 19th century and before. But by the mid-50s, this has become slightly low class because it shows that you've learned your cultures from books. 
rather than being with it, being up to the latest fashion. So there's a wonderful scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman, whom we haven't talked about yet, but who's really very good in this movie. He plays a friend of Dickie's named Freddie Miles, who recognizes that there is something not right about Tom from an early stage. And after Tom has murdered Dickie and adopted his identity, he sets up housekeeping in Rome and rents an apartment and decorates it to, to his taste, which is this very heavy late 19th century haute bourgeois stuff. It looks immediately like what somebody's grandmother would choose for furniture and decoration. And Miles comes over looking for Dickie, having heard that Dickie is living in Rome, looks around this apartment and knows immediately that it couldn't be Dickie. He says, this is all very bourgeois. And that reflects this transition or inversion in which formerly upper-class values and aesthetics are, are downwardly mobile. They mark Tom as an imposter. And formerly lower-class aesthetics and morality are elevated and mark Dickie and Freddie as authentic gentlemen, even though they, they reject many of the practices and virtues that in the past would have been associated with being a gentleman. Yes, I think that's right. On the one hand, Ripley is this new possibility of escaping social boundaries, of making crime pay, of becoming some kind of shape-shifting, ambiguous creature with no morality and no class uh, uh, prescriptions and habits and past. But on the other hand, he is the revenge of the past. Right? I mean, he kills Freddie Miles with a bust of the Emperor Hadrian. And his taste is all old-fashioned, and he has no use for these modern rich people or aristocratic people or aspirational people who are modernist and dissolute. He is the opposite of that. He is, aside from the murdering, all of propriety. That, I think, is part of what gives the novel uh, and the movie a certain charm. It's not just this astonishingly beautiful Italy that you can see in every shot and which Miguel tends to make more orange and all tiny than you would like things to be. But nevertheless, it's, it's a beautiful world. It's that the, that world also had a kind of harshness, that it was all, the old world of aristocracy where intrigue and cruelty were always at home. And Ripley represents that in a way none of these other people do, who are children, essentially. They've never given a thought, not just, say, to the possibility of murder, but on the one hand, as you say, the complexity of their position. They are trying to ride the wave and to recreate their social class in, at the same time. But personally, in their own lives, these are fairly childish people. They have no real capacity for reflection, no real interests that would make them interesting to us. They are unfortunately shallow. The best thing you could say about them is that they're conventional enough to be Freddie Miles a bully. Dickie is sort of not a jock, but something like a jock in an American high school. And March, a female urbanite with vaguely artistic impressions who actually just wants to marry somebody who counts. And that may be why Ripley comes closest to happiness in Venice and is out of place on the coast near Naples. Dickie and Marge are at home in the beach in these very elegant, but fundamentally very simple surroundings. 
which, as you say, have a childlike quality. Everyone is playing in the water and eating spaghetti and wearing very few clothes. Ripley can't fit in there, try as, as he does. Um, but in Venice, which is depicted in, in winter, it's not just the location, but also the season and the way the locations are, are lit and shot in the mists and the cold and the rain. And these buildings and material settings of extraordinary beauty, but historically, as we know, also great cruelty. The Venetians notoriously were not particularly nice people. This is where Ripley comes into his own. And it's a much colder and more uncertain and more violent world. But it's also a more adult world. Yes, I think that's a wonderful observation, north and the south of Italy, this sort of lower-class modernism versus the decayed aristocracy of La Serenissima. Ripley there finds the sort of environment where he could thrive, except, of course, for the fact that he's got a past that's going to be catching up to him. There's a snag in each of the two characters, Greenleaf, Dickie Greenleaf and Ripley, that they're odd ideas about love. In the case of Ripley, as you say, he meets this heiress and he tries to seduce her in Rome to be Dickie Greenleaf and to make the kind of society marriage that would be expected, which in a sense seems impossible. And they'd have to elope. He couldn't fool everybody into thinking that this woman married Dickie Greenleaf. Dickie Greenleaf has a family that will be announced if their son is affianced. <laughs> but he tries it because he thinks that maybe this kind of glamorous woman, who's also incredibly naive and nice, might be his ticket, you know, in the way in which, of course, daring men have married into oligarchies or aristocracies for a long, long time. It's how an oligarchy stays an oligarchy, by marrying its daughters to up-and-coming ambition. But, of course, in this case, it's going too far. He's a murderer, and that won't wash. But in the case of Dickie Greenleaf, the movie, unlike the novel, adds this notion that he impregnated the local woman, in Mongibello because he he's, that's the kind of guy he is. He just gets everything he desires and everyone. And the woman in an act of despair that is inexplicable and in, very kitschy uh, commits suicide. And it's tied up with this religious procession of taking Madonna to the seas. And all of it becomes some kind of uh, desecration of the place that spells to Dickie his doom and the fact that he doesn't actually fit it. He's just another ugly American. And that, of course, has nothing to do with the novel, and it really does not make sense in the case of the character. But I suppose it's another way of excusing the murder of Dickie. After all, he was such a cad. Yeah, I, I hadn't quite thought of that, but that seems right to me. There has to be, in order for the film to realize this therapeutic logic. There has to be some fault or crime in Dickie, which doesn't excuse his murder, but suggests that on some level he has it coming or he deserves some comeuppance. And again, there's no reason that that needs to be the case if Ripley is simply evil. But if the story is about the reaction of a morbidly sensitive 
and ambitious young man to a cruel world rather than a monster venturing forth, then we need some reason to be angry with Dickie, just as Tom is angry with Dickie, even if, again, probably few of us uh, would, would contemplate murder. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you can look at both the novel and the movie and see this sort of class difference in the way the entire attitude of the story goes. As you suggested, the attitude of the movie is indignation. You have to feel sorry for this guy who's been so abused by society and you can't excuse what he's doing. But after all, he's forced in one murder after a second, after a third. He, when he murders his lover, he weeps. It's uh, there. He has a soul of some kind. It's some kind of indignation at society. You see that this is what late liberalism did to stories. There's always some oppressed individual fighting the system. And, you know, in this case, he wins by nasty means. But the system really was quite rotten. And indignation at the system is the dominant and perhaps the only way to understand the difficulties of life. You know, you go to Italy, you find all these wonderful worlds out there. In a way, they're passe, but they're to be had if you're rich and have the right taste. And so that's a kind of heaven. What do you get when you get to heaven? You get a standard by which to judge the rottenness of society including, as I said, this dead uh, pregnant girl and the desecration, whereas the novel looks differently at the beauty of Italy. What happens when you admire that beauty? You breathe it, you become part of that taste. You don't learn indignation at what you're being denied. You learn contempt for the silly people who think, as it were, that they're human and that they have moral expectations. But in fact, they don't. You could say, you know, Venice is still there. None of what made Venice Venice in a religious or a political sense is there, but Venice is still there. The beauty is still there. Morality doesn't last. Your political regimes or things, any cause you would die for, let's say, like that doesn't last. But this astonishing luxury, not to say decadence, it's still there. It's there to be had by the right kind of man. Contempt is the mood of the novel. And uh, hence, as you say, it ends up with saying, well, will to power is the way you should go through life. It's an elevated taste. It costs a lot of money, but it can be done. Well, since you bring up taste and aesthetics, maybe we should say something nice about the movie. We've been we've been very we've been very critical so far, but it is an unusually beautiful film in a way that maybe is reflective of the glamour of the late '90s, which was an era of affluence and political stability that in retrospect seems brittle and shallow, but at the time, many, many people enjoyed. And I think it's that aesthetic quality that has given the film some afterlife. There are not so many films made 20 years ago that people still talk about and watch. This seems to be one of them. And I think the reason has much less to do with the characters or moral implications of the plot than it does with the fact that this is just a wonderful spectacle that you could probably watch with the sound off and enjoy just as much. That's some kind of ambiguous compliment since it suggests the dialogue doesn't really <laughs> uh, matter. Is it, is it ambiguous or is it a recognition of the film as a success of filmmaking, which is after all a visual medium? And that moment in the late 90s 
was really the last before the shift of upper middle brow culture to television, which is very talky. It's all about the words and the plot and much less about the visual experience. And in that respect, Ripley, the film, really belongs to the golden age of cinema that it's already nostalgizing and, and evoking, but is closer to, even in 1999, than we are today. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a very good observation. The film is essentially a pastiche, but for that reason exactly, it does bask in the reflected glow of cinema. And as you say, it's not merely a matter of glamour. What you see of beauty there in southern Italy, in Rome, in Venice, and even in the way scenes are framed or the way people are shot, you know, you can understand immediately why is Tom Ripley so taken with Italy. In fact, you might be distracted from uh, his uh, unpleasant moral qualities precisely because you're saying, you know, there are perfectly good reasons to love this world. To see this in, with the eyes of cinema is enriching. It's wonderful. You not, and then, of course, partly you say that uh, this is cinema's combination of aristocracy and democracy. It offers to anyone of good taste would love. Most people are not going to go to Rome or Napoli or Venice. And in fact, if you go there, as with tourism, you might be disappointed. It, maybe it's going to be the crowd or maybe it's that you're in a hurry or who knows what. But with the movie, you have this incredible luxury. It's all on display and it's a patient movie. It doesn't hurry you through anything and it doesn't skimp out on anything. And so, you know, even the 90s, that luxury was not all wasted. So by no means is it a bad thing. The beauty of the movie goes a long way to remind us why people preferred cinema at some point. Ironically, I read on the Wikipedia page, this may not be true, it rained constantly during the production. And it was, it was very difficult to get these moments of glorious Mediterranean light that make the film so memorable. And that in itself is a testament to the power of cinema because one of the terrible things that happens when you go on vacation is sometimes it rains and you paid this money and taken time to go to Naples or wherever and it's just awful and you want to stay in your hotel. The same thing happened when the film was being produced, but they were able to create this illusion, this glamour of a mythical Italy not only as it belonged to the past, but even the weather where the sun is always shining. Yeah, it is in that sense golden. And yeah, I guess if you have the budget, you can push through these unfortunate difficulties. I didn't know this about the movie and because you can't see it. It is made exactly as you would want to. The best tourism people expect. It's something that will elevate anybody in terms of taste. I think that is the, really where the movie is superior to the novel. You would have expected perhaps the superiority to come in terms of characterization because we like to fall in love with actors in a way we do not with characters in novels because it's not the 19th century. We had stars more than characters in novels in the 20th century. People fell in love with Cary Grant or Paul Newman or whoever, and they stayed in love with them for decades. This doesn't happen. That's an oddity about what happened in the 90s and has happened since. It's not really possible to make stars anymore. This was not, you know, Matt Damon or Jude Law. These people, they're not what Paul Newman was. They're not even what Steve McQueen was or what have you. We don't need to get into why, but it weakens the characterization. And that, again, shows how strong the, the movie making as a visual experience really is. 
It doesn't just show you why all these people would be in love with what they're going through with. You know, why would you throw away your hopes or your careers or why would you throw away your morality? Well, I mean, heaven is in the balance. You, could, you, can, you can taste it, you can touch it, you can live there. Maybe you can prevent being kicked out of paradise if you get rough. And that visual thing is not, it's, it's not just sumptuous. It reminds you of the fact that we live in a certain world that somehow this affects us. It says, it's as easy indeed as think about a rainy day and what that does to your mood or a long winter or what have you. But you can't control that world. Well, if you grab Italy, you can. You will live in, it's sort of like California for Americans, right? God tempted Americans with paradise and look at the consequences. <laughs> it's a, you know, you just go through any part of California and in its cities, especially on a bad day, on a rainy, cloudy day, rare as they are. It makes the world seem like you're coming off a drug high or something. It's really astonishing. Whereas here, it's golden. It's a golden world. You could get back to this paradise and the movie makes that come across in a way the novel doesn't even try. Of course, partly it's because they're somewhat different as stories, but partly I suppose is that the director knew why he wanted to film these things and he wanted to fill his audience with the exact same longing. And yet, as you say, it's pastiche and often quite obvious pastiche. And there are moments when, if you are the sort of person inclined to these things, you can see Hitchcock or... La Dolce Vita, or any number of other famous directors and films of the period. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. And in certain ways, it is similar to the jazz that is the sort of heartbeat of the movie. You know, in jazz, musicians often quote and embellish and adapt themes from other artists or other tunes. But it makes me wonder whether we've lost the ability to see that way, except in retrospect, because it is, after all, a, a period piece set at this moment that we now know, although Highsmith didn't when she was writing the book, was the pinnacle not only of a particular version of American culture, but also a particular version of Italian culture. So I wonder whether it would be possible to display the same kind of beauty in the present or whether it would seem laughable. And to put it a different way, it's not just the golden light of Naples, it's the golden light of nostalgia that we see here. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And uh, I, I think your remark earlier about the shifting taste of the rich people of America, in as much as they have cultural preferences and shape the industry, that change is very telling. As you say, it's TV and it's talking and it has no taste for cinema, for images, for montage or for editing. It doesn't have a taste for music, by the way, either. TV is prestigious in various ways, but it is not cinema for all these reasons. Whereas this was Minghella, is the guy who made Cold Mountain and English Patient. Selling nostalgia to elites is what he did. And, uh, you know, were they not better off for buying this sort of stuff? Just like, was he not better off for doing this than trying whatever might have seemed relevant or timely circa 2000? In this case, uh, you know, there's a touch of greatness there. He's by no means a great director, but this is special. 
And I think you're right that it is remembered and it's likely to be remembered for a while for that reason. Unlike, I think, the English patient and Cold Mountain, which were successful when they were released, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about since then, unless they're making Seinfeld jokes about the English patient. Whereas this film, again, does have some hold on the imagination. I think it speaks to more obvious things that youth and beauty and the hope of a paradise and some notion of discovering adulthood. These are obviously much more gripping themes than other stuff. And I think that they also have a depth that justifies the interest. It's not just it's a pastiche. It's as you suggest, we are looking back. We are unable to come up with new culture. We are recycling culture. We're remixing the culture we're recycling. Things are coming back into fashion and going out of fashion again as we become dissatisfied. We don't really know in terms of storytelling or fashion what does the beautiful really disclose to us and what are we going to hold on to or whether we even have the ability to hold on to. We like the arrogance of other eras where they thought this was in fashion as though it would be a big deal. And of course, with the absence of horrifying war and with modern technology, a lot of things last that you can see what the 50s look like today. But we, we admire that arrogance because we lack it. We have a certain kind of arrogance to look down on all previous ages who thought they added up to something and they didn't. But we do not have that arrogance to say that this will last. What we're doing here will be an achievement for, if not the ages, then you know, the nation or a while. You need that uh, confidence that in order to make any beautiful thing stick, it has to speak to us as questions of youth and love and friendship do about what is fundamentally human and what are we going to do in this world. Now it's absent. I'm not sure that it needs to be. I think that the debasement of taste at the elite level is neither deadly for elites nor for society, but it does suggest that taste should come from somewhere else. I suppose that's not entirely so surprising. It's been more than a century of new tastes coming from outcast groups, artistically or socially or ethnically or what have you, and indeed internationally. Outcast groups have made incredible uh, successes in terms of popularity, in terms of fashion. So presumably something could strike again, but what could have at least some of the charm of that pastiche where you see that these people we're seeing on screen, they're important. In some way, we're important with, along with them, but they're important, first of all. That confidence, this says something about who we are that we can fall in love with. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes me somewhat more sympathetic, perhaps, than I was when we began to the depiction of, of Ripley, because in some ways we are, we are all Ripley. Um, we, we envy the confidence and ease of previous eras, and we pursue it, but can never really find it. Our, our anxiety stays with us. And that means that the best we can do, like Ripley, is to be collectors. He can't either become what he envies or create an alternative to it. So he settles, and this is, I think, also clear in, in some of the sequels, but you can see it even, even in the book. He settles for pastiche and collection, and he frequents antique shops, and he buys little bits of beauty from the past that he can't 
make for himself. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that's why people sympathize with the character so much. It's not just the glamour. It's this part of beauty that seems eternal. It's, uh, it, it's why we're so scared of aging. We would still like to look the way we did. And in, in, in our minds, we think we do. I think the obsession with visual media like Instagram and, or TikTok has a lot to do with that, actually that there's a lot of young people playing with eternity, just like Ridley is doing. And presumably, you know, there's always a risk involved. You might end up crazy in some way, but not those kinds of risks, not this sort of drama of murder. That part of the movie is purely allegory. It's about losing your identity by trying to become a class you're not, by you can no longer be authentic because you're too derivative of this other social thing. This, in, in cinematic terms, I think you're exactly right. This is La Dolce Vita. This is Marcello Mastroianni flirting with the rich, with the aristocracia nera of Rome, with all these passe things. Uh, and I think it's Jean-Louis Trintignan in uh, Bertolucci's Il Conformista. You are an imitator. You have no identity of your own. It leads you into violence because you have to consume, take over that which you cannot yourself have, which is authenticity. I think that the psychology and there's an account of fascism that's insane. But in another sense, this notion that the beautiful must be asserted violently, it's and that collection has something to do with that. I think they are very connected. That Ripley is both a murderer and collector has to do with, as you say, the fact that on the one hand, he's not a maker of beautiful things. But on the other hand, I think this is the deeper problem. He's not really a user of beautiful things. The beautiful does not disclose to him what it must have been for some aristocrat he might admire to have been who he was. And would say that that's what makes him a protagonist in the sort of the hell of a series of stories, that it can never come to a good fruition. You can never live well enough alone. You are always stuck with something again and again, trying and failing to be meaningful or memorable. So is the lesson here that we are all cultural Ripley's, cultural psychopaths? That would be that would be a depressing conclusion. You know, I think that's why modernism became modernism. I think that's why uh, upper class culture was debased because people ended up thinking that it's all at the best of times hypocrisy and at the worst of time vampirism. You're leeching off the energy of the black people with their music so that rich white people can feel good. It's, you know, is there ever, is there any good way ultimately to justify the success of rap? What is with all these white boys in suburbia acting like they lived through the crack epidemic of the 80s? How much sense does that really make? So, you know, there is something indeed questionable, even aside from whether this is good taste in this practice. But I think that also, you know, if the movie is not uh, ultimately the, the same sort of thing as what Ripley does, it doesn't encourage quite the same sort of being a collector. I think it does try to get elites and the audience that makes for success. People may listen to cultural elites and social elites and say, yeah, Ripley, that movie, watch it, it's gorgeous, but they have to like it on their own also. And I think the movie offers at least a modest hope that if you see that there are dangers in the enjoyment of beauty and that the desire for those beauty are often darker than they seem, you could step aside from that. Not least, of course, because most of us are not lining up to be protagonists in some kind of drama. There's a certain encouragement. Let's all try and be celebrities online on social media. But presumably, there are still limits, not only in ourselves, but in society from this degenerating. And for the people who are looking for some kind of 
combination, from some taste, for some notion, okay, there's a judgment you come away with from this movie, but it's also a certain inclination, what you believe about the beauty. And then if that judgment and that inclination could go together, then that's a taste. And I don't think it's a bad taste, understanding that you can't have Venice or for that matter, Naples has nothing to do with whether that shows you something uh, that is true and uh, important about our desires and the better side of us. We don't need to become resentful or dismissive, just like we don't need to become violent or self-destructive. All of these things that happen in the story, I would say, are, are ways of failing to deal with this. You know, the temptation of paradise breaks all these characters, but it needn't be that way. That seems like a good place to stop. The temptation of paradise breaks these characters. I can't top that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we started in a more histrionic mood, but then, you know, the murder started. <laughs> so I suppose, like, the movie takes a turn for the darker and the somber <laughs> in the latter half. And, right, that's the movie. You, you get this beauty and then you begin to feel guilty about it or skeptical of it or you wonder. You begin to reflect on that youthful experience. Paradise One Loots Lost is at least going to be in your memories, as you suggested. And that's not a bad thing. That's part of human nature, I would think. Nostalgia is not going to kill us. In fact, it might remind us of some wonderful and worthy things, especially in those cases, of course, where you can't have them again, but others can. You can always introduce your friends to wonderful movies that will delight them again. You don't have to have a first experience again. And of course, we can wish for good things for children, for the next generation, even if we don't enjoy those things again ourselves. That's, I think, humanity. Well, shall we stop there? Yes, Sam, I believe we have come to the conclusion of our conversation. And I want to thank you again for doing this. It's wonderful to talk about world of the urban odd bourgeoisie. I'm a great admirer, as I hinted, of Henry James, of Europeans and Americans of the past and the future, the aristocrats and the Democrats. I think these are still themes that engage us, that will make sense of our everyday troubles. We don't have storytelling that puts the best and the typical together. We have things that are very successful, we have things that are very prestigious, but they almost never go together. But that's something to try for. We have to attempt to make sense of ordinary experience in light of our ideals and our longings. And for now, we can only do it in speech. So thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Titus. All the best, and let's next time return to Witt Stillman and Barcelona. Yes, let's do it. There's a logic here. <laughs> there's clearly... There's clearly a logic to this sequence. So yes, let's do that. All right. All the best meanwhile, Sam. Bye-bye. Yeah, likewise.